Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. Welcome, everyone. My name is Laura Jean Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's, and along with Alison Moorhead of Art History, I co-direct the Fireplace series. Today's chat brings together two scholars who spend much of their lives thinking about matter, what it is and what it does. Bronwyn Perry is Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. She is self-described as an amalgam of anthropologist, sociologist, and human geographer. She's currently here at Queen's as our Principles Development Fund International Visiting Scholar. Nick Mosey is a theoretical and computational chemist and professor in the Queen's Departments of Chemistry and Physics. And this morning, they've offered to do something that is quite special, generous, and perhaps too rare in intellectual life. They've each expressed a willingness to really stretch themselves across disciplinary boundaries, across the sciences, across the social sciences, and the humanities. From their very different vantage points, they've together agreed to tackle and discuss with us what appears on the face of it, a rather abstract question. How does matter matter? in chemistry, in forensics, and in wider social and public life. How do we understand presence and absence, wear and tear, the politics of track and trace? What is the interplay between chemical reactions and effective materialities? To get a sense of where this conversation may go today, let me tell you a little bit more about our speakers. Besides being a chemistry professor overseeing students working in the Mosey Group, Nick Mosey currently serves as the Associate Dean of Research for the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University and is getting quite used to talking to colleagues from all walks of life and research. Research in the Mosey Group focuses on developing chemical simulation methods and using chemical simulation as a tool for gaining atomic level insights into the properties and behavior of molecules and materials. He's involved in a number of projects, including an NSERC-funded collaborative effort that aims to create affordable alkaline fuel cells for the production of energy. Besides being a geography professor, Bronwyn Perry is also head of the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Bronwyn is interested in the social, ethical, and legal implications of transforming human tissues and DNA into bioinformation that can be circulated through multiple platforms and economic markets. Her publications include the classic 2004 book, Trading the Genome, Investigating the Commodification of Bioinformation, and more recently, her Bioinformation, published in 2017. Nick, Bronwyn, a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you. <laughs> to start things off, I'd like to ask each of you to sit back, reflect on your experiences. When and where did you first start thinking about matter and how it matters? 
Okay, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for everyone, everyone here at King. Uh, sorry, at Queens. My regal, my regal institutions confused there. Um, at Queens for having me on this international visiting fellowship, which has been absolutely fantastic. I've hugely enjoyed all of the events that I've participated in this week. And this is a really interesting, and I know it sounds slightly eclectic, but I'm confident that we will be able to excavate some really, really interesting and important matters here in this discussion today. So you asked me how I became interested in the question of matter. And for me, that began out of some of my early work on biosurveillance. So one of the things that I became very interested in is how um, shed DNA, so DNA that is left, for example, at crime scenes or elsewhere, can be used to testify to the presence of people when they are later absent. So you come to know that the person has been in that space because of the DNA that they have left, which they are then identifiable from. So I began to think about that process of being able to identify presence of someone you know, the, the, the presence from, of someone from these trace elements, which were absolutely tiny, minute in, in many, many cases, and actually in many cases not even visible. And then I began to think about other kind of techniques of biosurveillance. So, for instance, there are things like gate recognition technology, so gate meaning the way that you walk. And one of the ways that people try and identify individuals by gate recognition recognition technology is by bouncing, what they do is they bounce x-rays off them and then the way that you move leaves a kind of pattern that suggests the shape of you moving through space. And that can be a unique shape because we all of us move in different ways. So I thought, well, that's even more curious because now I'm somehow or another generating a kind of image of what something is that isn't there. So I'm kind of creating a negative impression, if you like, of a positive space. And that is what gives me a sense of, of what was there. And I began to think about what that meant in terms of using different kinds of technologies to kind of materialise, if you like, something that didn't actually have any material form. Now, in thinking about that work, I then came into contact with the work of two artists, Rachel Whiteread and Cornelia Parker, both of whom I think are absolutely fantastic artists. And interestingly enough, they were trying to do a very similar thing. So Rachel Whiteread began by trying to materialise, if you like, spaces that are there that, but we don't really think much of. So this sounds a little bit curious, but she began by doing things like pouring plaster into a sink and then once the plaster had set, she knocked off the sink so that the, 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 foot, the sink acted like a former and it disappeared, leaving a cast of the negative space of the, the sort of sink and the drainage system, by the way. And then she moved on from that to doing bigger projects, uh, including a house that she, um, that she did in East London. And this became a very, very powerful thing because in East London at that time, a lot of classic... Uh, terrace houses that had been there amongst the sort of poorer working classes were being torn down and replaced with these gentrified, you know, more gentrified tower structures and so on. Um, and so she wanted to kind of 
somehow or another create a sort of a monument to, to, to the life that had been there. Um, and the way that she did it was she actually cast the interior of an entire terrace house. So she took a terrace house, effectively took the top off it and poured pumped concrete into the house so that and then the house itself was removed so that what you were left with was a kind of monolithic structure that was both somehow or another very familiar to you so you felt you were inside it there was all the impressions of the doors and the windows and skirting boards and so on but somehow at the same time you were also held outside of it so you couldn't really access it and the work that she is perhaps most famous for along a similar line is the library that she created, the monumental library that she created in the Judenplatz Square in Vienna, which is a, a library that is a monument to the Holocaust, so it's a Holocaust memorial library, in which all the spines of the books are there and it's a cast, negative cast of that space. So you feel that all that knowledge is there in the library but you can't access it, which she uses in a way to try and indicate lost something that is lost and that is not, no longer accessible to you. So that idea of kind of um, casting negative spaces is something that's also been used a lot in biology. So in biology they do a thing called, in anatomy, they do a thing called corrosion casting. And what corrosion casting is, is say for example you want to look at the bronchial system, so a system of airways or a venous system, so you want to look at a system of veins, almost impossible to anatomise that out because what you're looking to capture is the space of the blood flow or the space of the airflow, which is a thing that doesn't really seem to have much materiality actually in and of itself. So one way that you can do that is to pump a venal system or a bronchial system full of resin at the right sort of pressure, so all of those veins fill up and then you corrode away the whole body and then what you're left with is a negative cast of that space of those airways. So I began to be really interested in this question of how you materialise the thing that isn't there. And the second artist that I talked about is a woman called Cornelia Parker who very interestingly started to do a series of artworks called The Negative Of... And I became really interested in these because the first one I saw was a framed picture of a thing that looked like a load of black hair. I thought, what is that thing? And I went up to it and I looked at it. It was called the negative of sound. And what it was, was it was the, the sort of like, uh, I don't know what you call it now, kind of like the Bakelite that is grooved out of LP records when you engrave that with a sound. So the idea is the sound itself doesn't have any materiality, but it is made material in a certain way. And she has a, she has a, a number of these which I, which I really like. So she had another one which she called the negative of words, and that was another heap of sort of like silver scrapings, curls of things. And I thought, what is that, the negative of words? And the negative of words was all the silver engravings that were left over when somebody engraves something in a silver cup, like, say, for example, a sporting trophy. So what she's trying to do is give a material presence to things that we think don't have a material presence, like words or sounds or things like that. So I also became interested in the question of how we try and get in touch psychically with people who are not there or who have left us 
through our contact with these kinds of trace elements. So, for instance, almost all of us would have an object or an artefact left over from some loved one. So, in my case, it's my father's handkerchiefs. Um, and they've never been sort of, well, they were washed, but since he handled them, they were not washed. And I don't really want to wash them because there's that sense that somehow something of him is imbued into that artefact. And we have that all around us in society. We were talking the other day, Nick, about the fact that we all go along to museums and we see Abraham Lincoln's bed or Marilyn Monroe's dress or something like that. And we're not somehow satisfied with a picture or an image of the thing. We want to get in touch with the actual thing. And there is something about the materiality of the object that we feel that we can somehow reach through time or reach through experience and somehow connect in a visceral way with that person or with those events. I was laughing with Nick about the fact that in England, Wembley Stadium, the home of football, um, was the original home of football, was eventually closed after a number of years when they built a new and much bigger Wembley Stadium. And to my absolute astonishment, I discovered that they were going to sell the Wembley Stadium pitch. So that is the grass that all those matches had been played on. And they cut the grass up into little squares and they sold it to people for a lot of money. <laughs> and people bought an individual square of grass. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they thinking that they're somehow buying here? Is this because Pele or someone fell over and grazed his knee on that bit of grass? Or did someone, their, you know, their, their most favourite footballer sweated on it or bled on it or, or something or breathed on it? I'm not sure. But there is really something very powerful there about that idea that some trace element of the body is imbued in this thing and that you can somehow reach through and touch that person through engagement with that sort of materialising something that isn't really there. But then when Nick and I were talking the other day, we began to think about touch, therefore. What's the nature of touch? What are we actually touching or even what is it to touch? And Nick told me something extremely interesting about his own childhood and how he thinks or began to think when he was a young man about touch. So over to you, Nick. Sure. That's a nice lead-in. You'd think we almost <laughs> planned this, right? So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so what got me into chemistry and physics and material science and, and, and studying these things theoretically really gets back to touch. When I was a kid, probably not as young as I think I was, but at some point I learned about atoms. And if you think of what an atom is, according to the modern ideas of this and modern studies, you have a nucleus in the middle of the atom that contains most of the mass and, char and positive charge, um, and it's very concentrated. And then there's a ton of space around it where there's electrons, but they're, they're really spread out, right? That space is, is fairly empty. And that got me thinking about how does stuff touch other stuff if it's not solid, if it's mostly empty space? Right. And, you know, because we like to think of things when we see them in, in the macroscopic world. If I look at this table, it it's clearly has a form and a shape to it. And I can imagine stacking something on top of it. And I, I can look at it. And obviously, this glass is not going to fall through it. Right. But if I zoom in, I would at the atomic level, I would see a lot of space there. So it's like, why don't these things fall through each other? How does something support one another? And what it comes down to is interactions. Right. Um, so we have this sense of absence of, of materiality, if we say, but there's still something going on. 
and it's how these particles interact with each other to give some materiality that emerges through these interactions, some strength, some cohesiveness. And you don't have to just think at the atomic level to get this. Um, you can think if you've taken a bus, if you've taught a class. Think of when we teach our classes and the students come in, right? They're filling the room, there's a space there, and they're going to occupy some of the space in there. They aren't continuous, they don't agglomerate into a single solid as some weird human gel. But, but rather what they do is they come in and it's the interactions between them and the room and the instructor and everything that determines how they arrange themselves. Maybe the student who doesn't want to be called on for questions sits in the back, right? The student who sees her friend sits close to that friend. They have interactions with each other. The keeners sit way up at the front because they want the professor to know they're there, right? And they arrange themselves. And um, this is what atoms do at the, down at the atomic level. If you look in, we've all seen, even if you're only tacitly familiar with chemistry, you've seen these structures where people draw them and they have lines between atoms and so on. And those lines really represent interactions. So you have nuclei at different points in space. We draw this line between them, but there isn't actually something there, something physical. Rather, it's an interaction holding those together. If you want to change it, you could think of it as, um, if you want to change these interactions, think back to the classroom. If there's an empty seat halfway along a row of seats and a student needs to get in, well, probably a bunch of other people need to get up and move around, change how they interact with each other to get into there. So this is really what, what got me thinking about this. You know, there's this space, there's this emptiness. Um, and when we go down to the atomic level, how does it come through? Um, which then led me into, well, how do, we, how do we study this, right? So if we think about it, now I'm going to talk more about the atomic level. But um, experimentally, it's very difficult to probe an atom or a, you know, or a small collection. There, there are pretty cool experiments where people can do this and they can go in and see these things. But it's, it's really hard. And it's especially hard to see... Uh, the change and things like this. You can get sort of static images of bumps and things like that. But as you can imagine, for things that are, you know, a trillionth of a meter thick, it's hard to get good resolution on that, right? Um, but unlike people where I talk about the interactions, where people sort of, uh, you can make predictions on a whole, but individually they're sort of random in how they behave, uh, particles follow laws. <laughs> and there's rules, there's Newton's equations that dictate how classical part particles move. There's relativity that just, uh, dictates how things behave at the macroscopic scale. At the uh, really small length scale that I focus on, uh, quantum mechanics comes in where actually even matter sort of starts to blur between particles and waves and things like this. So you start wondering what's there. But what's known is that there are all these well-established equations that dictate how these particles behave and interact with one another. And what this lets me do is solve those kinds of equations using computers. The math is, is complicated, but nonetheless, we can develop techniques to do it. And it allows me to uh, look at these things using the mathematics that dictate how they should behave in the real world, which is completely astounding to me that we've been able to tease these things out, that there's any sort of predictability or sense to it all, right? If you look around and think of the, how complicated the universe is, that we can distill it down to a few uh, simple, well, relatively simple equations. And from this, we can start to model these things, try and make sense of it all, uh, going in and saying, well, I know if I'm looking at a molecule or a material or something of, with some structure, what I need to know is that the atoms or the, the nuclei in these atoms have these charges. They're positive charges, but how positive? They're located at these different positions. There's so many electrons with negative charges, they're going to distribute themselves around 
the positive charges, right? They're doing this by occupying that space, if we will. And from this, we can model these things and actually see what they do, how they behave, not just what they look like in static pictures, but something that's really important to think about is how they change too, right? Um, experimentally, you might be able to look at something and say, you know, okay, we have water here, and when it freezes, we have ice in here. But what does it look like to go from one to the other, right? That actually happens really quickly if you zoom in on the atomic level. It's hard to probe experimentally saying you don't know that, oh, this little part of the ice cube is going to melt next, right? That's hard to tell uh, at the macroscopic level, but microscopically we can model this and we can see this change. So we have all these things we can look at. Now, the interesting thing for me, and I actually never thought about this until Laura brought it up, is that I actually do all this investigation into matter. What is structure? How does it change? How do things wear down and all this without actually using any matter, right? I'm performing chemical simulations and before computers were invented, we did this by hand. Well, not we, I'm not old enough for that, but, but my predecessors did this by hand, right? So this writing stuff down, they weren't doing the experiments in the lab. I mean, there are people who do that, but the, the people who, my predecessors, did things with thoughts and ideas around how this works in equations. So we don't have matter, but we're really making a lot of predictions about matter. And I think that's really, really powerful. It's sort of that absence, again, of trying to learn something from that. So uh, it's all these thoughts that I really think about a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that what you were saying there, Nick, about, you know, trying to model what happens in those moments between in a transition between one thing or one state and another is is really interesting. And one of the, for example, one of Cornelia Parker's most famous works is a work called Cold Dark Matter, An Exploded View. And what that is, is that what that work is, is she did a fantastic thing, which was take a garden shed, sort of a typical British garden shed, and she asked the British Army if they would explode it for her, which astonishingly enough, they were quite amenably agreed to do. So this shed was moved into a paddock and then they, they exploded it for her. And she took a series of images as this shed was exploding. And so before, at the, as if you like, at the beginning of the matter experiment, we had a shed. And at the end of the matter experiment, we had a heap of debris. And I think it's true to say that we all think of the shed as having matter, the debris as having matter or being material. But we don't think the explosion kind of has matter or has materiality. It's, we, think, it's, we think of it as something like a process, but it does, it's not actually a thing, if I could put it that way. And what she showed was that in this moment, as the explosion is expanding outwards, of course, at every second of its existence, it has materiality. So what she did with the exhibition was she gathered up all the fragments of this exploding shed and she recreated them at a given moment. And then she suspended them all from the ceiling so that they're sort of expanding out like this. And you can see the window and the door is sort of half gone and a lot of shattered remnants of, of, of timber as well. And, the, and then suspended them all in the gallery and lit it. And if you go and look at that image online, Cold Dark Matter and Exploded View, there it is a really powerful image and somehow captures the sense of what something is in a process of transitioning from one material form to another, 
that I think is very is very powerful. And so in a sense, what you were talking about with the modelling, you know, you're trying to model what is happening in a process of transition between one thing and, and another. And and what you, also what you referred to in terms of all the spaces between the different elements, it's, it's a thing that has become very kind of fragmented, very, th there's a lot of interstitial space there. And yet somehow the whole thing sort of still is 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 has a presence even though it is not an agglomerated thing in the way that you just described. Yeah, and so we have absolute parallels to that in our field. This this idea of process and change um, almost is more important than you know the shed or the pile of debris. If mm -hmm. if I bring it back to chemistry because this is what I know, we often think of chemical reactions. You have reactants and products. And a lot of people spend their time looking at one state or the other because they're stable, right? You can observe them for a long time. But if I'm trying to make something, if I'm trying to synthesize, say, uh, now I'm trying to maybe, not me, but maybe one is trying to synthesize a pharmaceutical, right? It's something found in nature, but there's not a lot of it in nature, so you want to make it in a lab. Well, the question is, how do you get from the starting materials that you can purchase, perhaps, and how do you make that thing, right? And how you make that thing, you know what you want to make, you know that you got these bottles of chemicals or whatever you have in the lab. It's all about the process in between. How do you get from one to the other, right? And understanding that, which is actually very difficult to probe experimentally because just like an explosion, it happens really quick, right? So the, the, the molecules we make, those reagents, they sit in a bottle. You can look at them and you can say it's white or it's liquid or whatever. The thing you want to make it's characterized, you know what it is. The processes that get you from one to the other are molecules bumping into each other and somehow reacting to make something else. And that happens on the order of 10 to the minus 15 seconds when it does, just super fast. You don't see this, so you don't know how it goes, but it's critical for getting from one to the other. Likewise, when you're saying about the shed, unless I assume when she was taking photographs, it was some really high-speed yeah, camera to try yeah. and isolate all these moments, because otherwise it's really just, yeah, absolutely. you know, yeah. And um, this is really what we, where we need to go. It's, a lot of it isn't just what are the objects, what is the matter, but it's really how do you go from one to the other. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that I think from, from these things is what is the, because you were talking a bit about trace and memory and mm -hmm. things like this. And I, what I find interesting too is that some things are recognizable. So if, if you were looking at the shed, you would say the pile of debris, you might say that came from a shed or depending, or maybe not, you might not know a shed, but you would at least know a building or mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. depending on how the pieces are cut and mm -hmm. what you might see in there in terms of joints and whatnot. And I think people seeing these things get them, yeah, thinking it, it teases out memories. Um, it might have, as you mentioned, some uh, connection to some deeper meaning to them, which I think was an interesting thing that we, we were talking about too. And uh, uh, you brought up earlier about the uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's bed mm -hmm. or uh, Marilyn Monroe, Monroe's dress. And what I, what I found really interesting when we talked about that earlier, and, and you brought it up again, so now I'm thinking about it a bit more, is um, the connection that it only matters for certain people. If Marilyn Monroe's dress is mislabeled in mm -hmm. a museum, mm -hmm. people don't care, unless it's some other famous mm -hmm. person. I don't know. I, I'm guessing fewer people go to the museum to see Abraham Lincoln's servant's bed yeah. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's bed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it has to be more than just the object. There has to be this idea that it 
came from somewhere, you know, or belonged to someone. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the connection between the person. Yeah. And, I mean, in a sense, what you're doing is you're using those kind of artefactual remnants to get in touch with that person. Exactly. Now, it, it's certainly the case that some people, like, for example, Abraham Lincoln's servant, you know, you or I may not care about, but if you were Abraham Lincoln's servant's um, great-great-grandchild or something, then that might matter to you. So the, the question of what who the person is, it only matters to someone to whom it matters, but nevertheless, it's a way of reaching those people. Another another absolutely fantastic series that I found incredibly compelling that Cornelia Parker did was this thing called the Tarnish series. And what she did was she went around, I mean, this stuff is genius, I think. She went around with a bottle of Brasso or whatever you would call that, Silvo or something, and she cleaned objects that had been in close contact with famous people. So the one that I particularly remember was she took she took a rag with some silvo on it and she cleaned the inside of Henry VIII's armour. And then she had this cloth which is, you know, which has had this sort of tarnish on it that had come from the inside of his armour. And I, I was transfixed by it, really I was, because I sort of thought... God, that must be kind of the remnants of somehow or another, the kind of sweat and, you know, DNA and something or another that really did belong to Henry VIII because he shed all this in this armour and they're having battles on a hot and sweaty day. Um, and there was something about how she made that, that his presence, which is now absent, somehow realised that through these these cloths that that had basically it, it it was exactly what you said a kind of chemical reaction a sort of chem you know the chemical reaction was almost used to bring out some artifactual trace of this real person and another great example of that for instance is the turin shroud mm -hmm. so we all peer at this turin shroud which we think has a kind of almost sort of photographic palimpsest of you know, Jesus, who was wrapped in this shroud and people have said, oh, look, you can almost see his moustache, his sort of beard and what have you. And, and it's a sense of you think about how incredibly valued that piece of cloth has become and the question is why is it so valued and somehow or another there is a sense and, and of course, you see this with every reliquary that you've ever seen and I saw some extraordinary ones when I was in Dubrovnik, absolutely incredibly beautiful floor to ceiling, elaborate, beautifully worked, um, you know, archives, if you like, of, of, of body parts of various, you know, venerable saints and, and so forth. I became a tiny bit um, curious about their sort of provenance when I discovered the third leg of St Blaise, which had been... <laughs> Which was in these different in these different reliquaries. So, in three different three different churches, professed to have a leg of Saint Blaise. I began a bit to be a bit concerned about their provenance, but um, nevertheless, and they argued over who had the real leg. You know, was this the real leg, or was that some other? It's just as you yeah. said, some leg of some other third person that we didn't care about. Um, so, but that is another tradition of trying to maintain contact with important or, uh, you know, people who have been highly um, venerated through these kind of material traces of themselves. 
So that's another kind of way in which matter really just does seem to matter in much in, in curious ways, much more so than we can really pin down or even explicate in a rational sense. Why does that matter matter so much? That's one of the questions. And why does it invoke these strong affective reactions in people? That's a question that I think we don't really or haven't really come to terms with quite yet. Well, speaking about the affective reactions and going back to the Henry VIII part, so for a lot of these other sort of relics, if you're talking the Shroud of Turin, you know, they're very reluctant to submit that to testing yeah. um, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that it might undermine the sense of, of meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so how did, how did this artist, how did people feel about this artist um, cleaning the armor? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it seems to me that there would be opposition to that, right? Yeah, I mean, good question. <laughs> I, I don't know. And I've always been astonished. I would love to meet her personally because she must be a very sort of compelling person because the thing she manages to get people to allow her to do, you know, is, is, is really surprising, I think. Um, she went to St Paul's Cathedral and she, she did another piece which I think was called The Negative of Whispers, and she went to the Whispering Gallery in St Paul's where she swept up all this dust off the floor, which was the kind of thing that people shed when they're sort of, you know, when they're, when they're talking in whispers like this. And, you know, another thing she did was she got permission to go to, um, to the, the, the Freud Museum and she, she asked them if she could examine Freud's you know, couch um, in which on which many people lay and recounted their their traumas, their their dramas. You know, on which they were psychoanalyzed, and she got permission from them to hoover up the couch, and from it she she produced, which she then photographed, this extraordinary detritus, which included you know, um, shreds of hair, which people were no doubt twiddling while they were, you know, recounting their trauma, and bits of chewed and, and, and pulled off fingernails, which, which people were also obviously going through some deeply kind of personal process in recounting their trauma. And these little bits of materiality were standing as witnesses or testifying in this incredibly visceral way to the experience that they had had of being psychoanalysed on this couch. And they're really compelling and you feel somehow or another that you're almost back in that room when you look at them. And that's what I mean by they kind of connect in a way that's surprisingly powerful. More so than we've all, well, we've not all, but many of us, for example, might have been to the Freud Museum and seen the couch and we go, oh, yes, gosh, imagine those people lying on that. But it's not quite the same. It sort of brings it home in a much more powerful sense when you sort of see this this detritus up close. Right, time has flown. Um, and you've managed to cover ground from the chemistry lab to Wembley Stadium to the detritus on Freud's couch. Um, thank you so much. Um, at this time, we invite questions from the audience. So if you, if you have them, come on, come on up. I have one myself. I've been thinking a lot as you've been speaking because your interaction itself um, 
is a process. It's an activity. And you've been talking about the difference between processes and things. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about more, um, Bron, your work on the bioinformation and mm-hmm. how it enters the capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. And thinking then about value and property. Mm. So I want to throw sort of back at you in, in, your, in your work and your thinking. Um, I assume when you think a lot about the transition um, of things to processes to things mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the value added and mm-hmm. what that means mm-hmm. and the society. But I think it probably matters for you too, Nick. Um, and in the lab, the processes that you're creating, um, these are things that are patentable as well. The actual processes, right? Um, as well as the things. Yeah, the, um, well, the processes... They, they can be. We don't typically patent processes, but one, you know, publishes them and they become, so you can go in, if you go into the world of organic chemistry, reactions all have someone's name. You know, this is a Suzuki coupling. This is a Michael addition. They're all named after somebody because somebody figured out if I do these things in this step, I can transform this into this, right? Um, I don't know if there's a lot that are, patented necessarily but but there is sort of intellectual ownership of it and and acknowledgement that somebody brought these forward um so there's a lot of that the the other thing when you talk about value added that we try and do i learned a new word as part of that you mentioned this this group that i work with uh, uh around trying to come up with these alkaline fuel cells right and another thing that we're trying to do there is take byproducts of biodiesel which is glycerol um frankly, just worthless. When they make biodiesel, they get a ton of this. It sits around in vats all over the country because they can't sell it. And they want to come up with processes to convert it into other chemicals that are more valuable. And so there is, by understanding how you can take this this simple worthless compound and convert it into something that people want to purchase. And the word there is actually valorization. So I was working with this group and I learned a new word, which was great. And um, But this is a big part of it. If we can come up with techniques to do it and not just a process to do it, but a process to do it efficiently, right? So if you're trying to convert something from something that's worthless to something that's more valuable, but to do it, you need something that's even more valuable still in terms of cost. Well, that's not economical, right? So it's a matter of trying to find the best processes, however you define best, whether it's best yield of your product, low cost, fast, whatever. So we, we spend a lot of time thinking about these changes and how to optimize them. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really struck me, Nick, when you were talking about synthesization was actually it reminded me that one of the first times I really began to think about properly about matter, what mattered and what didn't matter, was when I did my um, doctoral research for my Uh, thesis, which then became the book Trading the Genome. Mm -hmm. And I began to think about it because at that time, what that book is about is about collecting all sorts of natural plant products and materials from the global south and how they were, what, what what was done was various extracts were made of those plants, which were then turned into viable types of pharmaceuticals. And the question was whether or not those 
people who had contributed the plant materials in the Global South would receive any kind of compensation for their use when they were turned into these valuable pharmaceuticals. And in many instances, they were paid for bags of plant samples, okay? So they're getting, you know, whatever, $100 for a bag of plant samples or something like that. And I began to think to myself, well, I don't think that's where the value really lies. So what we're interested in in those plants is the chemical compounds that are within them, which, as you pointed out rightly, then we go on to synthesise. So nobody wants to have to go back to the Amazon and be collecting bags and bags <laughs> of plants all the time. It's totally inefficient. So what you want to do is synthesise them chemically so that you can make them at home on your own time. Um, so it occurred to me that what was really the valuable thing in those plants was the bioinformation about the chemical compounds, not, as it were, the material plant itself necessarily, or at least the materiality of the plant was useful in the very first instance in order to extract that bioinformation and then after that you don't really care about it. And you rematerialise that information in a different way, which is through a synthesised chemical compound, and then you can do what you want with that. So the argument in that book was more about the fact that what people should be compensated for is the bioinformational content of that plant material that they're donating rather than the plant material itself. So that was a way in which we began to think about the relationship between materiality and information, which is something that we don't think is having quite the same constitution as a material thing, although obviously information is materialised in different ways in its own terms. So it might become a database, for instance, that someone could have proprietary ownership over, or it could be a chemical compound that you might patent or something like that. But it's in those translations between one form of materiality and another that various political, economic and social challenges arise that we really have to kind of get on board with what happens when this stuff changes gear from one material formation to another and what that means. And some, I think that's something we do really have to pay attention to. So this is an excellent example of actually where you find computational chemistry use in the, in the world outside of academics. So drug discovery is incredibly costly, right? So what is done now is, is a lot of drugs that work in your body, you have a receptor somewhere and they basically need something that fits in it tightly enough. That's how a lot of things work. And so what they do is with simulations, they have a sense of what the receptor looks like. And they just, because it's on a computer, they just make billions of combinations of molecules and put them together. And if it looks like they fit, um, you know, they go from having billions down to maybe a dozen or so that look promising. Then they synthesize them and test them in the lab. And companies pay a lot for this because if they have to synthesize and test a billion things, it costs a fortune, right? Yeah. What you're seeing with, let's say, people in the Amazon and whatnot is they're doing, they've done all that for them by saying, you know, when we have this problem, we use yeah, this, yeah. you know, Curare or something, yeah. things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right, there's value in that because, there, first of all, there's no guarantee that the simulations actually lead to anything, right? And the hard part about the, the drug discovery process is actually finding good leads, right yeah. there's challenges with figuring out how to synthesize them economically and all that but if you don't even know what you want to synthesize mm. you know you're not going anywhere mm -hmm. and if people have done that with these and there's so many cases you can find where it's you know you find all these you know this group of people historically you know 
chew on this leaf or what, whatever when, when mm -hmm. something comes mm -hmm. up. And people start to tease in and say, well, what's in there? But it was that first mm -hmm. insight that mm -hmm. really got people on track. And that's worth more than just mm -hmm. collecting plants, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, paying for And I mean, yeah. that in a sense, that is a kind of Indigenous knowledge. Exactly. Which, which people have generated over thousands and thousands of years of experimentation. I mean, yeah. no doubt trying various leaves which didn't reduce your fever just killed you. Yes. So some clinical trials <laughs> that went horribly wrong there, um, which eventually led people to understand what really does work and what really doesn't work and in what sort of ratio and in what sort of dosage and, and yep. so on. So really very sophisticated forms of, of knowledge there that become materialised in the way people use those, you know, natural products. And it is that that has, that has a real value associated with it yeah. in the way that, that Nick has just described. Hi, so, so much, my name's Claudia. <laughs> um, so somewhat building on this, it seems that central to this is the idea of visibility or invisibility. So how does visibility and invisibility, and also while you were speaking, um, to some extent time comes into play there in some, in some ways, how does visibility or invisibility help or detract from making matter matter? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, it's it's question. one I've, I would need to think about a little bit more. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about those kind of shared bodily materials that we talked about, like DNA and so on, is that they attest to presence and absence in certain ways. One of the things I, I think is really quite curious about them is that we can't see them at all. So they're kind of... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're disruptive because you don't even know that you have left this evidence behind and you can't see it, it's not, it's not you know, evident in the room. Um, so there is something there about having to accept or trust at some sort of gut level that this thing that you can't see is is giving you evidence of something. And I'm sure, Nick, mm -hmm. you must find in your experiments, and especially kind of at an anatomical level, you can't actually see, at least not with a naked eye, yep. what is going on. And you're having to just kind of model it and trust somehow that it is unfolding in the way that you imagine. Um, but, of course, processes of corruption can occur. So in forensics, for instance, you can have degraded samples partial samples that actually give you a rather mixed or incomplete picture of what is going on. Um, so the question of to what extent you should trust what you can't see is, is an interesting one, I think. Well, I, this makes me think of um, earlier you were talking about gait analysis, right, yeah. and how you can look at how people move and everyone moves a little bit different and so on. Yeah. When you hear, for instance... Um, they discover some exoplanet 50 light years away or whatever, and they say it might be habitable because it has water on it. And you say, well, how do they know? No one's gone there. They can't zoom in with a telescope and say, oh yeah, that's a lake of water, right? What they're doing is every molecule with the, the bonds and the collection of bonds in it vibrates in a certain way. And when they vibrate, they absorb or give off light in infrared for vibration, that, that sort of area. And you can detect this. So what they're doing is they're detecting the light that, or the, the electromagnetic radiation that's um, emitted by this planet that's, that's that far away. They're detecting it, seeing these waves, seeing how it vibrates and saying, oh, that's, that's water, right? And it's remarkable. And people, 
some people trust. I'm sure lots of people are skeptical about things as they always are, but there's lots of ways that we do this. And you see it again with um, uh, more locally, if you take things like MRI images and they can look in and see, oh, there's you know a tumor here, you have this and that there. You can go in and look at this, but even before they cut someone open, because you don't want them doing that unnecessarily, mm -hmm. They're imaging these things, and it's because a lot of the materials we look at have characteristic features that you can probe that are really invisible. We're not seeing infrared radiation or things like this or, or radio waves and whatever, but you can detect them, and then they turn into something sort of meaningful and as a spectrum or something like that. Yeah, so you knew a bit of both. Thank you both for this. This has been a really incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we have proceeded, Laura, because um, there's been a lot to think about. One of the themes that have come up a number of times it has been this idea of memory and potentially attachment. So thinking about the Marilyn Monroe example. Um, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the materiality of memory. Um, I know, Broughton, for instance, you've done some work on dementia. Um, and I imagine, Nick, as a chemist, you have something to say about how memory is material in very important ways and how the transformation of those materials affects both um, a person's being and sense of being and also their interactions and potentially material interactions with other people. Um, so just, if you could say something about that. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And I think memory is entirely, people think memory is something that's going on in your head, you know, as it were, that it doesn't have a kind of material um, existence, if you like. But everybody, you know, memorialises things and remembers things through material attachments mostly. Um, so in the work that I did on, on dementia, when people begin to lose their memory, one of the things that they do is attach very strongly to particular objects which are familiar to them or which evoke in some way a set of memories or a set of uh, understandings about their world around them that are very familiar to them. Um, so they might be, you know, if they like to knit their knitting needles or something like that that they're very familiar with and they take them with them wherever they go, even if they're not knitting on the, on the go, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, when people go, we do really strongly artefactualise them and we all do it by holding and maintaining particular objects that remind us of those people. So I was giving the example of my father's handkerchiefs. Um, and I think sometimes we have strangely powerful sort of connections with these things in ways that are we don't really know how to deal with. So this is a rather personal example, but I'll just give it to you anyway. My own mother, who I was very close to, died in November last year and we dutifully dispersed all of her goods and, you know, that included books and knickknacks and paintings and, you know, all the usual ephemera of a human life. Um, and we'd done all of that and we were pretty satisfied with the distribution and so on and so on. And then when I was going through her effects in the nursing home that she was in and she had a few things there, a few effects there, her watch, her rings, you know, et cetera, which we looked at. And then there was one thing that I just found myself looking at thinking, what on earth will I do with that? And that was her teeth. So she had dentures 
and this, these were her teeth. And, of course, someone's smile is so evocative and I looked at them and I thought, well, nobody is going to use these now, so I guess I should just <laughs> chuck them out. And I just felt it was so transgressive at some deep level to just chuck out her teeth that I really and truly just didn't feel like I could do it. So I was kind of stuck between going, what should I do, you know? And I thought, I can't really give these to someone. Would you mind minding my mother's teeth for me? I, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I actually bought them all the way back to the UK in my suitcase. And now they're in my own bedside drawer down the bottom where periodically I have a little look at them and I sort of think, oh, hi, Mum, I still don't really know what to do with them. But it's really interesting how emotional and powerfully affective these things can be to the extent that even though you look at it and you're like, well, that's a bit of moulded, you know, whatever it is, resin or something, which I should just sling out because it has no material use at all anymore, I somehow or another am still attached to it and finding that chucking out quite difficult to do. Yeah, and it's – so I don't – I'm obviously not a, a brain or memory scientist, but the scientist in me, you know, when I just put on my blinders and I say, well, it's all chemical reactions and I don't know how it works, but there's something there, certainly material. But I like to think there's more, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, because – or whatever those reactions and structures or whatever are, they're actually very powerful in some important – some meaningful way. We would not have – evolved to develop these attachments to, um, you know, objects like dentures. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if, if there wasn't some purpose for it. So I think there's more meaning to it than that. And we see it all the time. I mean, you know, there are examples when people pass away. That's, those are, you know, where you have these attachments to things that, yeah, maybe are things where you say, I wouldn't normally keep these, right? There's things when you look back, if... If you have children when they were small and you're like, I remember when they wore this, right? And, yeah, you know, or yeah. people who, uh, you know, keep their wedding dresses, even though they're going to stay in a box up in the closet forever, but they want to keep it. And there's all these things because there is this attachment to it. So even when the scientist in me says that it's, yeah, you know, it's chemicals doing this or whatever, there is still something more to it. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but I wouldn't just dismiss it and look at it as, you know, we're just organic robots or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's something more there, and, and it's important, is, is, is my sense of it. It's an important part of being people, actually. So Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's something in that kind of chemical reaction between you and the object, yeah. which is, is kind of intangible, and we can't in any way really, you know, pin down. But, but, and yet it seems so resonant that, and we, have, we all experience it so strongly that there must be something more to it. Yeah, and, and we all recognize it in the sense that, you know, I know what you mean when you say you keep the dentures. I have some from when one of my grandparents passed away. I got this, like, jade, maybe it's jade, I'm not sure, bowl thing, right? But I asked for it. Because it's, I don't know, if it's not worth anything, doesn't look nice or anything, but I remember that from her house when I was a kid, right? And we all acknowledge that we all have these attachments somehow, even if they don't necessarily make sense. We all recognize that they're there, and we actually all understand it in each other, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't necessarily make logical sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the interesting thing about that, by the way, is that if your house was burning down, 
it's probably those objects which you've got in some shoebox somewhere along with a few letters that you would take out of the house <laughs> before any anything else. All those other consumerist stuff that you bought and blah, 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 you don't care about that. You care about these ridiculous few things, you know, these objects which connect you to your ancestors in that kind of anthropological sense. Mm -hmm. that, that's what you would probably rescue. <laughs> I, f I think that is fantastically interesting given yeah. what a high consumer society we work in and how we're knocking ourselves out working all these hours to buy whatever, you know, clothes, shoes, stuff, you know, whatever that might be, Xboxes or something or another, but we wouldn't be taking any of those with us in the crisis moment, I don't think. Yes, um, it's Sandra, uh, and um, you, we're asking about the materiality of memory and, and prompting such interesting discussion here. And I was just thinking, there are, when we're reaching back, it's not memory so much anymore, but it's almost like our imagination. So we never met Freud, we never met right. those yeah. people. I have a thing about Shakespeare, like mm -hmm. to, when I went to his house and walked on the flagstones mm -hmm. that they say he walked on, or there was a fireplace that he might have stood in front of, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, so of course I've never met him, but I have this, feel this desire to connect, so it's that, sort of that connection and just that important, so you really, the things that you're talking about are really resonating with me, and it's almost like... Um, like a veil between us and a moment that existed. If you think of our moment today where we are sitting here, this moment continues to exist in some way for me. And this, that's what I feel mm -hmm. when I see something that someone has held in their hands mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that moment still exists. And Nick, if you could make somehow chemically a way through the, <laughs> the, the spaces between the, the ions that we could, pierce that veil. Can you do that for me? <laughs> I, I don't know if I, that's a tall order. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's uh, just um, thinking about sort of taking it on to a, a beyond a notch of the actual memory, but the imagination of similar things mm. that we might live and yeah, do you see any hope well, for I, sort of piercing <laughs> that veil? I guess that's really where I'm going. Uh, well, I don't know about I don't know about that. We, there's constantly, you know, sort of recreations and efforts of this that are based on, you know, anthropological data, historical data and things like this. I think getting through where what you're imagining within your own head uh, to reflect reality, what the reality was of something is probably pretty hard, <laughs> I think. Um, but the other thing you brought up in there that I think is also interesting is it's not just when you think about Shakespeare or somebody that you've never met that you're doing it through a veil because in some ways you know more about Shakespeare than you know you know he wrote this or he lived there you probably don't know what he had for lunch on Tuesday on what right? you know and these sorts of things but even our own memories are often done through a veil I might remember what I did yesterday but if I think back to when I'm a kid I might vaguely remember that I did something like this but I, if I'm sure if it was recorded or I had a time machine and went back and looked at it it would not be how I remembered it things get filtered over time. So even our own memories, I think, are changing. They're not carbon copies of what happened, is, is my sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the temporal thing is really interesting, I think. The idea that, you know, we talked about that a moment, Claudia um, asked that question a moment ago. So the question of how we kind of reach through time um, th via these kind of material 
sort of affective pathways that somehow we can get in touch with things. I, um, I really understand that. And I think that idea of kind of piercing the veil, I think was a lovely way of putting that mm -hmm. because there is a sense that there is a kind of veil that exists between you and the past that you can never be there, that you can never have an embodied visceral, real experience of what it was like to actually be there at the time as opposed to observe from a great distance. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps that is what we all really seek. There is a thing in our own minds, I think, about the concept of sort of authenticity. So that is an authentic experience, you know, if you can somehow get that kind of, I don't know, well, I'll give you the perfect example from my own life experience which was seeing Anne Boleyn's rosary beads at, was it Hever, Hever Castle? So there, in a glass case, they have Anne Boleyn's rosary beads, which she was clutching in her hand up until, you know, she had her head chopped off. And, I mean, again, I kind of just stared at them and I thought, oh, my God, and it was as if they must have absorbed some kind of psychic, I don't know what, a visceral something from just being in that supercharged circumstance that she found herself in. And somehow you almost felt like if you touched them, you'd be electrocuted or something. <laughs> you know, there was a bit of a sense of that. So, it, you know, that you do think, well, that is a way of getting in touch with this kind of very a very authentic experience of what it's like to be there as opposed to just, you know, reading about something in a book, in a history book or something yeah. like that. But you're right that, you know, memory is completely unstable and, and you know, inaccurate. What we think we remember about all aspects of life are so frequently wrong, you know. Um, we, we Our accounts that, you know, yeah. that we have, that we... I mean, it's interesting actually in dementia work, you know, they, they say that, you know, memories, you have these sort of flashbulb memories, which is very common. So during life, you remember, um, you know, the night your house set on fire as a kind of flashbulb <laughs> memory and, you know, your, your wife or husband was doing this, your children were doing that, the fire engine was arriving, etc. And you have a very fixed memory of that moment and you hold on to that and you perform it over and over in your mind, your account of what was happening that night. But actually often you, there are various aspects of the account that you, that you were wrong about or that you misremembered, but it doesn't matter because you keep performing it anyway, yeah. so that becomes the account. And it's only when you attempt to corroborate that with someone else that they go, no, the fire engine didn't arrive, remember? They were all busy somewhere else or something yeah. happened. And then it's completely confronting when you realise that your account is wrong, factually, as it were, wrong. Um, and most of life is, is actually made up. This is a fascinating thing to try and do, by the way. Most of life is actually made up as kind of, I use the analogy in the dementia book, of, of a string of pearls. So the pearls are like these flashbulb memories of moments in your life. And what's actually joining them together is a bit of kind of raggy brown string, to be honest with you. So when you try and think about those parts of your life that are not the flashbulb memories, you actually really struggle to come up with a whole lot of anything. A lot of that stuff in between is very, 
very vague. And another good way of, of testing this is to think about those flashbulb moments where you go, yes, the house is on fire and we were here and we were there and something other, and to think to yourself, but what was happening in the rooms on the left or the rooms on the right or out the back or out the front? And you'll find that just as soon as you try and move yourself beyond the core of your memory, there's nothing there. You don't right. actually know what was happening down the hall or, or you can't even remember if you're on the first floor or the second floor or where you were. So it's a, it's a very discreet thing that you're memorialising there and once you move beyond it, you're pretty much lost. Yeah. So that, that I think is an interesting, is an interesting thing. Hi, I'm Eun. Thank you so much for your conversation. Uh, this conversation had me thinking about materiality of human bodies. Mm -hmm. So if you think about memory, it's mm -hmm. enmeshed with like, mind and body mm -hmm. and this like not separate things, but it's our bodies that we interact and sense other material uh, matters outside our own self. And I was wondering how like, if you could talk more about material, materiality of our bodies, what it is and what it does. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, really wow. interesting question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it sort of takes us straying into the kind of philosophy of the kind of theory of mind, why we have brains that enable us to reflect on our own existence and think about memory, whether or not that kind of theory of mind is shared by other animals or organisms, you know, dogs, for instance, do they have memories of, of, of human beings? Snails, are they going yeah. back to the same place all the time because that's where they had a last great dinner, you know, or, or not? Um, so the extent to which they're able to really think reflexively about those things or whether they're just operating on, on a kind of reflexive mm -hmm. biological, you know, um, experience, if, if you like. So I think that's a very interesting question. And the, 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 But I know that we do, when we think about things and when we memorialise things, we do have very visceral responses to some things. So thinking about something obviously can upset us, it can make us dream, it can make us sweat, it can make us tremble, you know, we can have very strong physiological reactions to these things that sometimes startle us or take us unawares. Um, and maybe that is part of why we seek these kind of affective experiences that invoke in us something much more, you know, um, embodied. So a real sense of, of, of the fear or the fright or something that for example, Anne Boleyn might have experienced or, um, or the kind of psychic sort of agony or distress or whatever that she was feeling for us to feel that, that we have had a real experience um, that accords with her own. Maybe that's what that is about. My name's Julia MacArthur. I'm alum alumni of Queen's. Um, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I don't know anything much about chemistry or physics, but we have been very lucky at Queen's to have Dr. McDonald's Nobel Prize. And because of that, his research has become um, more visible to the 
general public such as myself who visited the little pop-up museum in Stirling Hall and I learned so much about matter and, and those particles that come from the sun and go through everything until X miles down under Sudbury in a mine they've been able to register these things that go through our body every day that we never even knew about and to me that's been the most amazing example of matter made um, visible <laughs> even yeah. though it's not visible at all but it's been fascinating to to be able to see that and get to know it and because of that I've actually been reading some more about things at a very popular level but even so it's been fascinating it's been great so whoever did that display is mm -hmm. cheers <laughs> cheers to them I also read a book recently by Teresa Greenwood who used to live on Wolf Island and Kingston, and um, she moved to Fort McMurray just before the big fire, the big fire a couple of years ago. And she wrote a book about um, the experience, and it's called, I think, What We Take With Us. And she had the usual half an hour to pick up everything she wanted to take with her before their house burst into flame and completely mm -hmm. got destroyed. And the book uses the things that she picked up from their house within half an hour as a sort of a framework for how she wrote the book because of the importance and the memories and all the um, material attributes of the things. And they were, ran they were sort of a funny <laughs> random collection what, of things. What were they? Um, one of them... Oh, if you can remember a I few. I can't anyway. remember, <laughs> memory, <laughs> can't remember, but I remember one of them was an object of her father-in-law's, and he was a very powerful f figure in her life, Roy Bonasteel, and so she was um, wanted to take something, I think, in the moment that just reminded her of him, and there were things, uh, I think there was some textile of her, her mother's or there were all these different things, and it was really amazing to read her book, and and she used them to sort of go back into her life and talk about them and the memories of them. So it was really, it's just amazing. It's like the half hour of what you take with you, <laughs> mm. and how half an hour is quite a long time, in yeah. a sense, yeah. to 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 make decisions about selection. You've got a a little bit of time anyway yes. to think about it. Yeah, most people you know, if they're in their home and, I don't know, the fire alarms are ringing or if you're in a university halls of residence or something and the fire alarms are ringing, you know, right, it, it's like you literally have about three minutes to gather up your stuff and and yeah. get out. And, um, and, of course, you're always being told don't take anything with you. Yes. Uh, so you know you're not going to be able to take a lot with you. So you're going to be quite judicious, I think, about what you what you do take. Although I think so much of your mind is taken up with terror and yeah. <laughs> all the other things, did I remember to feed the cat kind of thing, so that it you may find yourself having collecting a, a group of objects that otherwise you might not have. <laughs> yeah. Like not I mean, things that you would say, oh, I must take my grandmother's portrait. It may not actually in the end be something that you mm. you take. Mm. I don't know. I mean, of course, historically what most people would take would be photographs. Yeah. So most people do take 
take photographs. Although now, of course, it, people wouldn't do that so much because they're less likely to have material renderings of photographs and they're more likely to be held in the cloud or, you USB know. USB key. <laughs> yeah, or they yeah, may take yeah. a USB or they may take a, a hard drive. Yeah. Which would have a lot of these things, a lot of these things on it, um, but I think because of that, they're potentially more likely to take some objects that they that they are particularly attached to, given that that other stuff is is sitting in the cloud somewhere anyway. So they feel that they can still access it after the after the event. And the the, the part you brought up about. Um, Art McDonald, actually. I can't believe I hadn't mentioned this already. It's so present at Queen's, but around the neutrinos. Another example of something yeah. we can't see, right? They're a form of matter, but they came out of... It wasn't because somebody saw them and thought, oh, we need to investigate this. It was people saw other things happening and noticed something was missing when nuclear-type reactions happened. And... Then to even just study them, it's, you know, you have these particles that essentially don't interact with anything. Like you said, there's billions of them passing through us right now and we don't notice it. Um, nothing happens, we don't explode or something like that. You know, it's just, they're going through. And it was, it was years and years and years of work under, I don't know how many kilometers of rock and inside special lead case, you know, uh, objects and things like this to try and, and probe these things that exist. So there's so many levels of this that, you know, there could be other things we don't even know about. There's lots of search for um, dark matter now and uh, because it's hard to find because it doesn't interact with normal matter. And everything we use is normal matter. So how do you detect it, right? And uh, it's amazing. Somebody, based on things that I sit on that are related to Snow Lab and, and places like that, I get a glimpse into some of these experiments. And even now they're just looking at, well, we can say it's, it doesn't weigh this much, so it must be down here. Like, they're even just getting to the limits. It's not we saw it. Yeah. It's just we're figuring out where to look for it, right? So the, these ideas are, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you both. That was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and I have the pleasure of thanking you again on behalf of the Fireplace Series, uh, Nick Mosey, Bronwyn Perry. Thank you for your generosity in um, it, what, leading us in what feels sort of like an intellectual, embodied, um, interdisciplinary stretch class. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for stretching towards each other in different disciplines and thank stretching you. with us. What a wonderful morning. Thank you, thank thank you very so much. much. Thank you. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening, and please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series.